Rents are rising. Is it up to lawmakers to control the situation? Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Lawmakers are heading to Tallahassee later this month for a special session on homeowners insurance. Democrats also want to tackle the rising rents. Will the issue get any attention? And what can politicians do? Also, the rising cost of our Cuban coffee coladas is the cafecito in the coal mine, which is uh, the cost of doing business is going up. Speaking of rising costs, the Miami Herald's Carlos Frias is looking at how costs are going up everywhere, and that includes our precious Cuban coffee. And finally, it's Wildlife Thursday. This week, we look at the key deer. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Has your rent gone up? Chances are it has. If not, you probably know someone who was in that position. It's because South Florida has had the largest rent increase in the country. Median prices went up 57% from the previous year. It passed the New York area as the least affordable housing market in the nation. A group of Democratic lawmakers are calling on Governor Ron DeSantis to address protections for renters in this upcoming special session, which is coming up at the end of the month. Joining us now is Representative Michael Greco. He is one of those lawmakers. He represents parts of Miami, Miami Beach, and North Bay Village. Representative Greco, thank you so much for the time. No, thank, thanks for having me. I'm just celebrating that you pronounced my name right. <laughs> if I ever had in the past, I know you would have corrected me, so I'm not worried. Um, yes, sir. We know the housing market in, in South Florida is booming, costs skyrocketing, and renters are in a very vulnerable position right now. But I wondered, what are you hearing from your constituents? What What's changed? What's different for them? Yeah, that well, the housing market is booming for the uber-wealthy, but for the regular Joe or the regular Joanne, uh, they're having a real tough time. I mean, listen, I was a renter a significant majority of, of my adult life, and I couldn't imagine what I would have been doing if I woke up one day and my landlord uh, increased my rent by 30, 40, 50 percent because they, they got bought out by a hedge fund or they're just essentially taking advantage of the, the lack of inventory at this point. You signed this letter, you along with 27 other Democrats, asking the governor to uh, expand this upcoming special session to consider protections for renters. They're going to be looking at that the session is for homeowners insurance. But have you heard anything from the governor's office? Is anything? I, I, do Republicans look like they're going to move on this too? Nope. That's a, that's, this could be the quickest interview ever. The answer, the answer is no. There, there's, there's, there's such a low likelihood that that's happening. I mean, it was hard enough to get them to to address property insurance where the little guy's been getting screwed for years by insurance companies. Uh, there's no way that they're going to let allow us a platform to address how they've left the average Floridian behind but this and is, how they're letting go ahead. This is affecting their their voters as well. Rents are going up everywhere. It's not just South Florida. You're right. You're right. But it's their fault and they don't want to come. They, they don't want to get taken to the floor and have to explain how we got here and what they're going to do about it. We have solutions on our side. 
I mean, geez, I mean, landlords in Florida don't even have to require, they're, they're not even required to provide air conditioning. And I've been trying to change that for years, trying to get them to do something bigger. Um, you want to talk about an uphill battle. They just don't want to address it. Let's talk about some of the protections that you're looking for, that you're asking for. Uh, that renters re- need right now. I mean, part of it is, I know there's a bill that looks at the issue of mold. There's a bill, of course, uh, that would put a little bit tighter restrictions on landlords and, and how they can raise rents. But what, what are some of the things that you're trying to push for here? Well, I mean, listen, Florida has generally been tenant friendly, at least on paper, but not when it comes to the increase of prices and other issues. Miami-Dade County has a tenant's bill of rights. If I had it my way, I would make it statewide, uh, you know, which includes no evictions during emergencies. Uh, you know, we need to, we need, we, what we really need to do at a statewide level is we need to prevent what's happening now, which is essentially price gouging. It's essentially using issues like inflation and claiming that that's the reason why people are getting their rents doubled or tripled or at least increasing by 50 percent, at least the statewide level, making sure that renters can get advanced notice. Like there's no ramp up time, you know, at least in Miami-Dade County, locally, we've been passing ordinances that require landlords to provide 60, 90, sometimes 120 days notice if they're going to jack up your rent. But at a statewide level, there are no such protections. You know, that's for the actual renter. And then, you know, there's a global conversation to have about why do we have such low inventory? And there hasn't been any effort at the statewide level to make true investment, increasing the inventory for workforce housing and for other affordable housing units so that folks have options and they're essentially getting priced out. And now we've got out-of-state hedge funds and investors coming in and wanting to just buy up the market. I mean, I'm a homeowner. I get unsolicited calls at least once a week from investors making me offers site not seen on my property, which is just insane. Now, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about landlords just briefly here. Sure, there are some, in some cases, you have hedge funds and, and big companies coming in from the outside buying up properties, but you still do have that little landlord, you know, who owns a few properties here and there. They got hit pretty hard during the pandemic. Um, are there protections for them? Well, their, their protections are right now the market. I mean, they they can take full advantage of the fact that there is such low inventory that they can kind of command their price right now. And that's at both the commercial level and the residential level. So right now, you know, they're kind of even though they got hurt during the pandemic, you know, they're kind of sitting in the catbird seat when it comes to being able to command rents. And the unfortunate part of it, it's the reason why I've always been uh, trying to protect the tenant is that no matter what, it always seems like the little guy's getting screwed. But it, the average renter is getting screwed. Just in case, though. I mean, again, just, just talking about the, the smaller landlord, not the big company, the, the hedge fund, but the smaller landlord. Do any of these hurt them, protect them? I mean, you want to protect the renter, but at the same time, not stealing from one for the other. Well, listen, I am not a... I, I've, I've always been very supportive capitalism. I am a free market Democrat uh, and never could be pegged to something different. This is not a situation where I'm talking about manipulating the market. Putting putting burdens on landlords to have to give notice and to not be able to price gouge. I mean, there are plenty of consumer protections that are in place for price gouging for other aspects of the market. Um, We just want to make sure that at the end of the day, that tenants are not getting put out on the street and they're not getting screwed in the process, but we're not trying to 
hurt the one-off landlord who is trying to use their investment property to make a living and or to live off. So no, that's not the intention. What is there ever been a conversation about rent control? Do you think that's a possibility? Ooh, that's a that's a dirty word. Okay, you know, but we don't, you, but just we, to, we don't talk about rent control. So the answer the answer is no. Um, at least not for me. Okay, that's a that's a non-starter conversation for me. Um, I, I do not support rent control. Um, I do not support any sort of governmental manipulation of markets. Um, I don't. I don't think. I, I don't think by talking about price gouging, we're doing anything other than making sure that people are not taking advantage of markets, just like they do with uh, with, with other aspects of of other markets, um, whether it be. Uh, controlling big business or, or whatever we're talking about. But in this scenario now, I, I don't think any of the conversations about rent control. Um, I, I don't think that's, that's even on the, on the agenda for like the furthest, furthest left of my party. Again, I'm talking with Representative Michael Greco. He represents parts of Miami, Miami Beach and North Bay Village. Uh, he, along with 27 other Florida Democrats, calling on the governor to extend this upcoming special session to include protections for renters. This session is coming up at the end of the month, and they're going to be talking about uh, homeowners insurance, of course, just as we're about to start hurricane season soon. You can find more details about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, Another thing, too, is there was a request for a housing state of emergency uh, to the governor back in December, and he didn't respond to that. But what would a housing state of emergency do? Well, in a, in a housing state of emergency, it would, it would give the governor the ability to take certain actions. Or more importantly, it would give the legislature something to focus on. You know, for years, for years, the Republican-controlled legislature has consistently rated what we call the Sadowski Trust Fund, which is a it's an eight-figure, nine-figure trust fund that gets created every year that's supposed to require the state to reinvest in affordable housing. And they rate it every year, and then they don't use it when it's supposed to be used for. We could create vouchers where we can help people, at least as a stopgap, for purposes of, of making sure that they're not losing their homes. You know, Miami-Dade County and some of the local municipalities are doing an amazing job in taking care of tenants and creating rental assistance programs. At the state level, we're just not doing it. And again, we're leaving a lot of average Floridians behind we, we, in the process. And I say we, but I'm not in charge. We, we've talked about the, the Sadowski Affordable Housing Trust Fund numerous times. What, what are they taking the money for? uh pork uh whatever whatever projects get buried you know it's why hasn't there ever been a a, a rule set up to protect that fund oh there is and it's just ignored you know policy up in up in tallahassee is really dictated by three people in in a smoky back room and you know and i'm not in that room unfortunately I'd, I'd i'd love to be there and i'd love to put the sunshine out there but whether we're talking about property insurance or whether we're talking about affordable housing these decisions are getting made by a very very small group of people with a lot of money and a lot of influence and it's not you and it's not me and it's not probably 99 percent of my constituents well all right when you say that now i'm losing faith in the system because i'm wondering then what is what can you do what can you do if you're telling me just me personally right now, well, me personally just, right now, yeah. I can talk to you and I can try to get as many people to listen to this and to listen to me as possible, because unless there's parity in Tallahassee, when I mean that there is balance in the force, and I know yesterday was, was Star Wars Day, 
We need to create some balance in the force. I mean, I'm running for the state Senate trying to flip a seat to try to create balance in the force, because if all part, if one party controls every aspect of a state government, that's not good for anybody because that puts the power in a very, very, very short list of people that can be influenced by a very short list of people. And it's very dangerous. And whether you want to give give up on the system or not, you know, the only way that we can do it is in the ballot box. All right. This past week, Miami-Dade commissioners, you mentioned this just a moment ago, that they had passed the uh, county's first tenant's bill of rights, uh, protections for tenants. Broward County commissioners approved a law to protect uh, tenants from sudden rent increases. Do you think that's basically the only thing we can count on is it's going to be local governments if the state can't do anything or won't do anything, we're just going to have to depend on our, our local governor uh, government to uh, to help protect us in this situation. Well, that's essentially what we've had to do for years, whether it be on environmental issues or other types of issues. You know, it ends up falling on the on the local government. The problem is, is that the state government at any point can preempt all of that and they can do it retroactively, which means that everything that we're doing down here could be erased with the stroke of a pen. And the decisions of three people, if they get enough pressure to do so. So, yes, at this point, the local governments, that is our our first line of defense for tenants. And I'm just crossing my fingers, hoping that the state government uh, doesn't come in and say, you know what? This is a statewide issue. We don't think that local governments should be doing this in a patchwork quilt. We don't want to address it. We want to just keep the market completely open. You know, tenants be damned. Look, if, re- if renter protections aren't considered in this special session, I mean, what what's next? Because, as I just said, we just passed New York. New York, you know, for least least affordable. People need relief now. I agree. And, you know, there are only three people in the state that can decide whether or not we would be addressing it in this special session. I have very little faith that that's going to happen. And unless we have another special session because the governor wants to have another temper tantrum about Disney, we're not going to be going back up onto the floor of the Florida House until after the November election, where hopefully I'm in the Senate and I'm able to fight for tenants and for the little guy, not just in South Florida, but throughout the state. But right now, there this people need to stop looking to the state for help because the majority party is, is not looking to help right now. He's Representative Michael Greco, represents parts of Miami, Miami Beach, and North Bay Village. Representative Greco, I appreciate the time. I do, always. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Thank you so much. All right, and we'll have more on this story, and we'll be following that special session at WLRN.org. Well, still to come, are coladas the canary in the coal mine? Are the price hikes warning us of just how bad inflation can get? Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Well, we just talked about rents going up. The price of gas is going up. And now our Cuban coffee, too. According to the Consumer Price Index, inflation is the highest it's been in almost 40 years. And yes, the cost of a cafecito or a colada is up. In some places, the price is doubled, tripled, even quadrupled. I know. Your dollar colada could now be two, three, four dollars. We recently spoke with the food editor at the Miami Herald, Carlos Frias, about what he's seeing around South Florida. What in the world is happening to the price of our cafecitos and coladas? 
Well, the rising cost of our Cuban coffee coladas is the cafecito in the coal mine, right? It's the it's this small outward indicator that kind of shows this bigger picture going on uh, behind the ventanita, behind the little window at uh, all of our favorite restaurants, which is uh, the cost of doing business is going up. And that's that includes labor, that includes bulk material costs, like you know the cost of fry oil, the cost of sugar, the cost of eggs. All these things are, frankly, three times what they were two years ago, and so those things start to creep up in prices, and it's reflected even in your colada, which. Which, you know, as little as two years ago, you there were a lot of places, many places you could go in and buy a colada for a dollar. Right. Which, which was honestly, really, it was a ridiculous deal that, you know, it was one of the best deals in food is that dollar colada uh, and the dollar, uh, the dollar, a dollar fifty, a loaf of Cuban bread, three feet of Cuban bread for a dollar, dollar <laughs> fifty. Well, hold and, on. How did, how did you find this, though? Is it, were you just out one day and you're like, wait a second, or did somebody start saying to you, you got to look at this? Well, what's funny is um, I, I was looking at a tweet that uh, that Doug Hanks uh, posted, uh, you know, a month ago maybe. There he was at a ventanita in Hialeah and posted that the price that they had written on uh, the outside that the prices had gone up and they'd shown the price increases, and it got us thinking about like you know what is how could we tell this very Miami story that relates to inflation? You know, how do we tell a story that isn't uh, way down in statistics and and everything else in a way that people can relate to, and it seemed like like the disappearance of the dollar colada was was the way to do it. How much? I mean, did you just were you going around ventanitas and just seeing for yourself? And because I wonder what you've been what you've seen. You've noticed, or at least you posted in in your reporting, like in some places it was a little rise, in other places it was a big increase. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought there was only one way to do it, and it's I I spent a couple of days like on Twitter just asking folks, hey folks in Hialeah, what are your what are your iconic ventanitas? Uh, and then I looked around Miami, what are the iconic Miami ventanitas? What are the you know the the most popular places all the way from Homestead to North Miami? So then I, I you know I called twenty of them, I called twenty of them and said, hey, how much your colada selling for? I'm sure the the you know, poor people were like, why are they asking me this question? But they were, everybody, everybody was very nice. And I just kept track. I kept track of all 20 and I took an average and, you know, there was like, uh, there was maybe one outlier, but the truth is when you averaged it out, the average cost of a colada was over $2. It was like two oh nine at, at these 20 of the most popular, uh, ventanitas in Miami. I mean, look, we, inflation right now, the worst, according to data from the you know the, the government that is the worst since 1981 but did anybody say to you that they think it'll ever go back down to what it was that we'll get that dollar colada again or is this this forever no it was quite the opposite it was uh it was you've seen the end of the dollar colada you know um and i think that frankly i think that's okay i'll, I'll be honest with you the last couple times i go to the win anytime i go anywhere i pay with a card and if they give me a colada and it, it could be $10, I'm going to pay for it because that's what I want. I need my sweet, sweet nectar of the Cuban gods. And, uh, and I will pay, I will pay whatever sum they put on it. I mean, uh, up to a limit probably. And then I'll just make it at home otherwise. You know, it was, it was a little frightening. I mean, because you, again, you, you talk to owners of restaurants and they, they sh- at least one of them showed you, you know, his costs. 
and everything is going up. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, besides the coffee, you know, I mean, how are restaurant owners doing right now? The one restaurant owner that basically, you know, showed me everything under the under the hood. And uh, that was uh, uh, Jesus, who's the owner at um, at Chico's Cuban Restaurant in, in Hialeah. And I just went out there because I knew it was one of the favorite spots um, for, for folks in Hialeah. And he just the nicest man, uh, Jesus Ovides. And he, he literally reached into his pocket and he pulled out this long receipt that looked like it came from CVS, you know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, and it was actually from a, from a local uh, purveyor where he had bought a bunch of things in the, that morning. And he, and he showed, he went down the list and he circled like sugar, eggs, uh, fry oil. And then he went back into the office and he opened his files and he's like, here's our files from 2019. And he showed me what, they, what his costs were. And a lot of cases, you had things like eggs that had gone up from like, you know, $20 a case to $84 a case. Wow. You know what I mean? Fry oil that had gone up from like $22 to $47. You know, so these are all tangible costs that have to come from somewhere. And at the same time, he says, you know, we try to keep our prices low because people are, are uh, shaken by even the most minor price change. He raised the price on his very affordable breakfast by 50 cents you know like that's how he tried to offset his his costs a little bit yeah but come on i mean how long can you keep doing that before it finally eats you I, well i will say he also he also did tell me that he received some ppp loans uh that were forgiven and he's like that made all the difference in being able to, to stay afloat through the pandemic um and and I, I would imagine that, that that also did help lots of restaurant owners, having that that injection of cash to be able to stay afloat, pay your staff, and it was all forgivable, you know? So that was that was a program that really worked. The forgivable PPP loans really worked for some people. I know that we've reported about all the problems that there that there were, and certainly there were. Um, but for the folks that uh, that it that it helped, I mean it it made all the difference. You know, have you noticed anywhere, and I'm trying to pick up on this wherever I go, um, that menus are changing because restaurants are going to have to take some stuff off because of cost. Have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. The restaurant owners told me that um, that there are some weeks where some things were just not available. Like they could buy things, you know, they could buy three months worth of supplies of, uh, you know, cups or whatever. But there's no telling if there's going to be a shortage one week of tomatoes or next week there'll be a shortage of uh, romaine lettuce or something or cilantro at one point. So like these random things. And then you have these restaurants that all of a sudden have to reshuffle their menus. I don't know if you've noticed, but like one of the most common things at Cuban restaurants is the little wedge of lime. Right. right, right. We, use the little, we use a little wedge of lime for, you know, to, to spice up the croquetas. We put it over, you know, our, our, our um, palomilla steaks, our, you know, our, our chicken steaks, that kind of thing. And I've seen several restaurants that have lemons, yellow lemons, American, like, quote unquote, American <laughs> yellow lemons. And I've asked and they said there's a shortage of limes. And I actually talked to this, uh, talked about this with the owners of a restaurant called Itame, which is a, um, a Peruvian uh, Japanese uh, fusion restaurant. It's, a, it's called Nikkei Cuisine. And they're over in uh, the design district. You know, it's literally a, a, a dad and his two kids uh, who run it. And limes are at the core of everything they do. They do ceviches. So ceviches and tiraditos, all those things use lime. 
And they said their costs of their limes have skyrocketed, like easily four times the price of what they were paying a couple years ago. I yeah no I've noticed I've noticed the little things even the little mm-hmm. things uh, that that are on the side the little garnishes things have ch- a lot of things are definitely changing you know just to finish up with the with the coffee though, I want to come back to that mm-hmm. you said it you know it, it's part of our life getting the cafecito the colada whatever it is is part of our life and I've noticed even coffee in other places the price is going up that's just something people aren't going to give up right no matter what the price is. We're never giving that up. We will pay it whatever price they put on it. We like, you know, like we're going to chase that coffee and we're going to drink it. That's our fuel. That's the jet fuel that fuels Miami and, and we can't get enough of it. This, this is true. This is very true. I'm speaking with Carlos Frias, food editor for the Miami Herald. Nobody breaks it down like he does. We're talking about how to say adios to the $1 colada in Miami but also how restaurants are doing right now during this inflationary period. Plus, Carlos is up for another James Beard Award, the prestigious award in the culinary world. You can catch up with Carlos and find more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. I wanted to shift over and, and, and talk to you a bit about, and first of all, congratulate you. Uh, you are up for another James Beard Award. Congratulations. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. It was, it was a, quite a surprise and and really, it's a it's a great honor, and I'm this I'm, is I'm, I'm very humbled. Let's remind people this is a big deal in the food industry. Yeah, for a lot of folks, I mean, uh, for a lot of folks, winning a, a James Beard is a little bit like winning an Oscar. You know, there's they do a big Oscar night kind of uh, event. Uh, they've been giving out awards for almost forty years now, and and it's and this particular one is 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 a local voice award, so it's named after Jonathan Gold who was uh, one of the few food writers who has also won a Pulitzer Prize. And, and, and it's named after him because of the way that he highlighted his local community in, in Los Angeles. Like he, he made Los Angeles into a small town through food. He made you uh, understand and appreciate all those little mom and pop places, you know? And so I, I won that award a couple years ago and I'm nominated in the same category again. And that to me is the biggest honor. That, you know, the recognition that you are doing in some way uh, something to highlight the local community that you cover. So, What, what are some of the stories that uh, were submitted for this one, uh, you know, to, to nominate you again? Well, the interesting thing about that category is that it, they want to see a variety of work, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the work that they considered for me was um, uh, I, I, wrote a, um, I wrote a story, uh, okay, a, a couple years ago. Um, when the, the pandemic began, uh, there was a man when we didn't know how COVID spread, right? Like it was April. And there was a man who worked for FarmShare, uh, the, the food pantry. Um, and, he would, and he would go out to these food distribution sites uh, and dealt with people all the time. So he was scared to bring COVID back to his family where his, his uh, I, I want to say his wife had cancer. His his uh, mother-in-law was immunocompromised, and so were one of his kids, had like immune, uh, immunity um, uh, disorder. And so he started sleeping in a tent in his own backyard, like for over a month he'd been doing it. Mm-hmm. And it was telling the story, Matthias Ochner, uh, our Herald photographer, and I just spent uh, part of a couple days with him, just shadowing him. Um, seeing how he dealt with people and how he kept coming home. And he would, they, they used like a bathroom that went from the uh, the inside of the house to like the pool 
which he was sleeping on the deck next to the pool in a tent. And they used that bathroom as an airlock. Like his wife would bring in food and cl fresh clothes. And then he would put in his dirty clothes in a bag. And he just went to these extremes to make sure his family was safe. No, so that no, was one of the stories that was that was considered. I remember that story. But yeah, and it was so early in the pandemic where all nobody knew. We didn't understand so many things. Um, this is the first time, by the way, the uh, in the last couple of years that this award is having its ceremony, right? Because because of the pandemic, it had to it had to shut down. Yeah, it shut down for the pandemic, but also for for another reason. Like they did a full accounting uh, of their practices of how they how they uh, chose restaurants, how they chose. Uh, really, it was more it was less the writing winners than it was restaurants and chefs who were honored because there's two categories: one to honor chefs and restaurants, and two the the reporters who write about them. Is it because um, they they found what was it? I think they had found that the winners that one year were just basically there was all white men. Yeah, it was like a it was like a the latest in a long track record of just a bunch of white guys winning the award. And they're like, we, there's got to be blind spot. Like, there's obviously blind spots in this when there is such a variety of cuisine um, in this country, you know, from, from coast to coast. And it's like, how could there not have been one single black nominee or winner? And so they literally scrapped the whole thing and said, we're starting from scratch. And, uh, and they went through a whole, and they were very transparent about how they they pick new people to, to be, you know, testers and to be scouts and, and uh, you know, everybody had to go through kind of like a, like a racial sensitivity training and, and like a racial bias and like a gender bias training. They really made people aware of, uh, or tried to make people aware of their own biases. So I, I uh, I'm interested to see the final results, you know? Yeah, no, no, it, it really interesting to see, because I didn't think about that until, I mean, I read that New York Times piece, but then it got me thinking about Miami, and I said, wait a second, do we have that problem here? Because, I don't know, it just seems to me, a lot of the people I've spoken to on the program, and a lot of the people I've seen you report on, like, there seems to be a pretty good diversity of men and female chefs. And, you know, uh, 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 chefs from many parts of the world of races and ethnicities, like there's diversity here, right? Or is that is that not the case? Well, no, there's diversity absolutely in the field, but it's who's given the voice to speak, right? Like, frankly, our jobs, who like I, am I and I ask myself this all the time, am I doing a good job at trying to look beyond the surface, beyond the people that are sending me PR pitches and going out and looking for places people that are that are um that make up our diverse community you know am i am i talking am i going to black communities am i eating you know um, black southern american and you know caribbean food am i seeing whose places have been around for a long time places that are getting a buzz you know am i writing about the communities that are coming from peru and honduras and nicaragua and all these places that make up really the fabric of miami so it's it's incumbent on i feel like it's incumbent on us to elevate some of those voices you know um so i, I think that that's that's how you uh, that's how you 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 find parity you know that's how you um try to create some kind of if not equality but at least make it a little bit more egalitarian you know we all have blind spots you know i i'm, I'm not gonna say that i don't you know we because we're all raised with with our own blind spots and it's just it's just trying to do the work to be to be aware you know yeah no no that and that article did make me think I, I i just wondered are we are we talking 
to all the people. I mean, it, are we are we getting all those voices in there? Or are we just leaning on just a few? Um, so it's great to have that pointed out, definitely. Well, Carlos, again, congratulations. Uh, the ceremony, I think, the is uh, in Chicago, right? It's in Chicago on June 11th, and I I can honestly say it is just it's an honor just to be nominated. All right, so. but you're you're going to the party, right? I will. I will. You know what? I'm going to, if they're putting on a party, I'm going to be there. I'm going to bring the cafecito. Oh, uh, Carlos, good luck, man. We're all rooting for you. And thank you so, so much. Thank you, Louis. Take care, man. Again, that's Miami Herald Food Editor Carlos Frias. Check out his reporting on this story and his podcast, La Ventanita, which is out today with a new episode. Uh, find it all on our social media, WLRN Sundown. Well, still to come, can you imagine moving key deer off the Florida Keys to protect them? Well, it could happen. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. It is Wildlife Thursday, and that means we're talking to an expert to get to know a South Florida species a little bit better. Key deer, other than being cute, and they really are, they are the smallest subspecies of the white-tailed deer. And if you didn't know that, you're not alone. They're unique to us because key deer only live in the Florida Keys. Let me repeat that. You cannot find them anywhere else in the world. The Nature Conservancy works to tackle solutions to climate change and the complex climate issues all over the globe. Chris Berg is the Conservancy's South Florida Program Manager based at the organization's office in Big Pine Key. And we spoke with him on Earth Day about key deer. What does it mean for key deer to be a subspecies of a white-tailed deer? The key deer is genetically extremely similar. They look extremely similar. But the key deer have been isolated from the main population of white-tailed deer for long enough, uh, isolated here in the Florida Keys, that they have started to branch off on a new uh, evolutionary pathway. They have uh, gotten smaller. They have different um, you know, skeletal structure uh, on their, in their skulls. They have a different, uh, slightly different coloration and various adaptations uh, to the uh, harsher environment, the saltier, uh, generally drier uh, environment. So does that does that mean that they act differently? You know, has the personality of the key deer changed dramatically from, I guess, all other deers? So behavior-wise, they're very similar, uh, if not the same, as your common white-tailed deer. Um, I would add, though, that... You know, deer all across uh, the range of the common white tail, as well as the key deer, really, their behavior really varies depending upon where they live and how they interact with people. And so for many years, uh, the key deer, as well as uh, white tails all across uh, the country, uh, were targets of uh, hunting. Uh, it was really the end of hunting that started the recovery of the key deer from its very low numbers and less than 50 key deer remained back in the 1950s. And when hunting stopped, the deer started to recover. They started to, you know, successfully uh, reproduce. And now there are probably at least seven or 800 of them. It's difficult to get an accurate number. The point is that 
they've also, in the absence of hunting pressure here in the Florida Keys, they've also gotten much more comfortable with people. So we see key deer walking along the side of the road or walking up, up into people's yards. Yeah. You know, going back to what you said, though, they also have been changing because they're only found in one place. So they've adapted to that place. But do we know, uh, you know, how over how many generations, over how many uh, years or decades or even centuries those changes occurred? I don't have a number of generations for you, uh, but it's been something on the order of 10,000 years since the uh, Florida Keys were cut off from the mainland by uh, rising sea levels. These deer are very good swimmers. They can swim between islands. Uh, I've experienced that while sleeping out on a boat uh, near near Big Pine Key, which is where my home is. What's, a, what's that like, by the way? I've never heard of that either, deer that swim. Yeah, very, very interesting. The islands of the Florida Keys all used to be connected to the mainland. You used to be able to walk from Key West uh, to Orlando without, you know, getting your feet wet. It was one big giant landmass. But as the sea rose, um, something like 10,000 years ago, the islands of the Keys were cut off by seawater. Um, the passes between the islands got wider and deeper. And, um, and that is what isolated the deer from the main herd, if you will, the main herd of white-tailed deer and started their evolutionary changes. But they are very good swimmers. Uh, and it was really the big pass where the seven mile bridge is between Marathon and the lower Florida Keys that was too wide for them to swim across. But uh, it's something else to see them swimming. They, uh, just like a dog, you might say, they, they um, wade into the water and walk until it's too deep. And then they start to dog paddle or deer paddle and they stick their noses up out of the water and and are quite good at it. It's surprising. Really startled me uh, that morning that I was waking up at dawn uh, out on my boat near Big Pine Key to see this strange thing moving through the water. What well, yeah, and what when was it that you got interested in working with key deer? My folks introduced me to nature at a young age, and and so my folks, my family would take a drive up to Big Pine Key and visit the National Key Deer Refuge and. The Blue Hole, which is a wildlife observation area. Um, and it wasn't necessarily that the key deer were the only thing we came for, but they certainly were a highlight along with the big alligator and the blue hole and all of the other uh, interesting birds and wildlife found here on Big Pine Key. It was really uh, as, a, as a young boy that I started to pay attention to the deer. And somewhere along, I guess I was nine years old, I had the good fortune uh, to be shipped off for the summer, or part of a summer, I should say, to what's called the Everglades Youth Conservation Camp. And that's up in Palm Beach County in one of the uh, uh, portions of natural area managed by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And the youth camp is all about, um, actually, it's all about hunter education and how to be a responsible hunter. And for those that get through that part of the, the camp curriculum, they move into what's called uh, at the time, it was called Advanced Camp, where you're getting into ecology and uh, nature study of various other kinds. And I really gravitated to that. I started to work uh, at that youth camp as an instructor or a counselor and um, started to think I wanted to get into environmental education for a career and uh, went to college for that. And I've been uh, fortunate to work for the Nature Conservancy, which is a um, international nonprofit conservation organization, but happens to have had a, a program in the Florida Keys since the, uh, well, work in the Florida Keys since the 70s, but a program 
staff based in the Florida Keys since the late 80s. Um, the key deer population considered stable, uh, though it still remains an endangered species. But what does that listing, that status do? Is it helping? Uh, I would say the listing uh, under the U.S. Endangered Species Act has very much helped the key deer. And let me let me put this in perspective. Um, at one time, key deer were not considered anything special. They were just another animal in the woods and people were hunting them. And as more and more people arrived on the scene and more and more people were hunting the deer, uh, it got out of balance and there were too few deer. They were starting to you know, reach extinction. And the um, population was at, at one point in the early 50s as low as uh, 50 or fewer animals. The natural resource managers of the time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and others, realized that this was going to mean the extinction of these um, unique animals. And they, at that point, said, okay, no more hunting. We're going to protect these animals. They started the early efforts to protect the habitat, that is to uh, buy natural areas so that they could continue to be habitat for the deer and all the other species. And they started to manage the habitat, you know, through things like controlled burning and removal of invasive species. But that was in the early 50s. It wasn't until 1973 that the Congress passed the uh, Endangered Species Act, the one that protects uh, and has led to the recovery of things like the American bald eagle and the American alligator. Uh, But uh, the deer were one of the very first species that were put on the endangered list. So the Endangered Species Act uh, classifies uh, very rare animals as either endangered, which are at greatest risk of extinction, or threatened, which are you know the next they're, they're getting there. If they continue on the path they're on, they're going to become uh, an endangered species and ultimately potentially become extinct. And uh, with the passage of the Endangered Species Act, that brought more uh, funding uh, to uh, hire more staff at the at the National Key Deer Refuge, and those are staff of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and those are the people that manage the deer herd and manage the habitat, and also work with the people that live here and the people that visit here to ensure that they don't do harm to the deer. You talk about water, and uh, to bring up, you know, in the Nature Conservancy study on sea rise, you know, you have areas of Big Pine Key that expected to be underwater in just a matter of decades. Big Pine, where the majority of the key deer call home. How much of a threat is sea rise to the key deer? Sea rise uh, is probably ultimately going to be the end of the key deer. Um, I hope uh, that's not true, but uh, the way things are going right now, you know, we can manage the habitat. We have been able to, you know, prevent hunting we've been able to improve the habitat through prescribed burning and invasive species control and we've been able to convince most of the population here that they shouldn't feed the deer and gotten people to slow down so they don't you know have collisions with the deer and kill them but it's much harder to control um, the global problem of climate change and that problem is driven by our greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are heating up the atmosphere, that's heating up the ocean, that's melting the glaciers and ice caps, and that is leading to what's turning into a very rapid uh, sea level rise. And to put this in perspective, earlier I was talking about how a, a you know thousands of years ago sea level rise is what cut the 
veer off from the mainland population, creating the islands of the Keys and created ultimately the separate subspecies of deer. But at that time, that was a very, very slow process. For roughly the last 3,000 years, the rate of sea level rise has been about one inch per century. But over the last century, it's accelerated to about 10 inches. And now we have projections from the latest STOA a study by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that suggests that we may have 15 inches by the year 2050. And so we're, we've gone from a very slow, very, let's say manageable from the deer's perspective, uh, sea level rise to a very quick one. And you can see this on the landscape. I live in the pine forest, uh, in the heart of the key deer territory on Big Pine Key. And when I walk about a uh, quarter of a mile south, I reach uh, the area where the pines, which are on the high ground, meet the mangroves, which are in the intertidal zone. That is, they get flooded by the ocean twice a, twice a day by, um, you know, typical tides. And you can see that the pines on that, where, where the two come together, the pines meet the mangroves. The pines are stressed and they're smaller and they are slowly dying. Um, and they're not being replaced by new young pines. They're being replaced by mangroves, by red mangroves, by black mangroves, and by other salt-loving species. Well, so it's it's happening in my in my lifetime. You I've know, uh, so look on I mean, this island for twenty years. When you look, when you you have a, a situation like this, humans can adapt. We just if if it gets too high, we just move. We just have to leave. How, how do key deer adapt? Can you just pick them up and move them? So that's that's on the table, so to speak. Um, you know, we've been able to conserve these animals in their native range. The place that, that they uh, became the key deer is the Florida Keys. Um, and we can continue to manage them and try to, you know, buy time for them. And we, I think we should. That's certainly the, that's certainly the, uh, mode that the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, which are the federal and state agency respectively that manage much of the land in the Keys. That's certainly the mode that the Nature Conservancy is in and the county, Monroe County, pays a great deal of attention to the key deer and other endangered species. But um, if we can't, we as society across this planet uh, can't curb the greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change, that are, which is driving sea level rise, uh, we're left with two choices. Either we let these animals become extinct or we pick them up and move them. And, you know, from my perspective as an ecologist um, and someone who's been, you know, paying attention to this issue an awful lot, it, it may be that that's worth doing. Uh, soon as you move these animals away from the Florida Keys, they're going to start to adapt to the new habitat that you put them in, and they will start to become something other than the key deer, They'll generation change. by generation. They yeah. will change. They'll change. Um, again, you live on Big Pine Key, and you're not moving yet, but you've said in the past that these studies are about hope, not fear. Please explain that to me. Well, absolutely. So I think... Um, like COVID, you know, it, it was a lot scarier until we understood it. Uh, it's, it was a lot scarier until we had solutions in hand, uh, not to not to completely solve it, but to uh, minimize its impacts. And now that we've got a, a couple of years of um, COVID and and response to it under our belts, it's it's less frightening. And it's the same with uh, sea level rise. It's the same with the impacts of uh, climate change, whether they are sea level rise or droughts and floods and wildfires and all the other 
very unfortunate things that it's causing, the better we understand it uh, and the better we begin to map out the solutions and then and then take meaningful steps towards uh, implementing those solutions, uh, the more hopeful I am. So as you said, people will be, will be able to adapt if, if the time comes that uh, our islands of the Florida Keys or our island of Miami Beach or our coast uh, around the world is underwater, we can do one of two things. We can you know, elevate our structures, we can elevate our roads to the extent that it's financially feasible. Uh, and we can also, when the time comes, pick up and move. Uh, that's what that's what drove the Dust Bowl back in the back in the middle of the country in the um, early part of the last century. People couldn't live there anymore, and they picked up and moved to California and everywhere else. We can do the same uh, for people. Uh, unfortunately, for wildlife, and particularly endemic wildlife, that is, endemic means species that are found nowhere else than one particular place, and that is like the key deer. Um, I'm, I'm not very hopeful about the long-term trajectory of, of um, the key deer and the other endemic species here in the Florida Keys. That is something, the thought of having to move an entire species to protect them. Hmm. That is Chris Berg. He is the program manager for the Nature Conservancy, again, for our Wildlife Thursday. You can find more information and, of course, some very cute photos of key deer on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that's our program for this Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Coming up next week on the show, we're going to continue to discuss this issue of rent in South Florida and what it's doing to the region. But we want to hear from you. Email us, sundial at wlrnnews.org, or you can text us, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Six, seven. How much has your rent gone up over the past year and how is that affecting your life? Are you considering possibly moving from the region? Also coming up, poet Richard Blanco joins us and he'll read some verses. How the blood sealed, dried, then washed away, leaving me in awe of my finger, mended without a scar. In praise of my body's own instinct to repair itself in honor of its own will to keep being, and in my fear of how long it will remain so resilient, ungoverned by the feeble thoughts of the other me, whose mind keeps cutting into itself, never quite knowing how to mend without scar. He is Miami-Dade County's new Poet Laureate. We'll hear from him next week. Have a wonderful Friday. Have a great weekend. We're back live on Monday. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.